Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. If you're not prepared to murder somebody who's not necessarily guilty of anything, then you're probably in the wrong business. Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. It's estimated that today, illegal trade accounts for one-fifth of the global GDP. In his 2009 book, McMafia, Misha Glennie outlined the growth of organized crime around the world, from drugs and sex trades to internet frauds and money laundering, documenting various mafia organizations. Big Mafia is now serving as inspiration for a big TV show of the same name, being produced by BBC and AMC and starring James Norton. It's expected to air in 2018. In Misha's time as a journalist and writer, he's seen the inner workings of the dark things that take place in this world. Today, he tells Carla about his findings, the mass amount of organized crime that takes place, and what it's like to sit down and chat with some of the most dangerous people in the world. What do you think of the organized crime? Because in your book, you talk about that, you know, make everything legal, right? Make all the drugs legal. And that's something that you think is a good thing, right? To make every, legalize everything. Uh, right. So, so here's where we stand on drug law, on drug law reform. First of all, you have to understand the, the narcotics trade, which is an enormous multi-billion dollar trade worth somewhere in the region of uh, $500 billion a year. It's very difficult to tell because the value across the chain of the commodity changes so dramatically. And of course, it is uh, not registered. It's an unregulated trade. So here's what happens. The principle of drug prohibition is exactly the same as alcohol prohibition uh, was in the 1920s and 30s. So, for example, when Seagram's in Canada became the mighty empire that it is today, it did so on the back of prohibition. Um, It could do that because as a prohibited commodity in the United States, um, the value of alcohol rose as soon as you were able to get it across the border from, uh, from Canada. Now, if you have an unregulated trade, uh, you will always find regulators coming in to make sure that those profits are made and uh, distributed in the way that they in the way that they want it. So that is what happens with organized crime. Organized crime runs the drug trade using violence. So by prohibiting it. We make it a violent trade. 
We remove ourselves from the regulation of drugs. So that means that when the drugs arrive in the consumer zones from the producer or distribution zones, so for example, when cocaine arrives in Vancouver and then is distributed to uh, Toronto or Montreal or wherever, the state has no way of identifying what is in that cocaine, how much of it is rat poison, how much of it is uh, amphetamines, how much of it is... Fentanyl or fentanyl or cardiphenol, right? Yeah, all this sort of stuff. So the state is absenting itself from that market, which makes it very dangerous from the consumer. But because of the fact that violent gangs control the trade from the zone of production to the biker gangs in Vancouver and Ontario, um, uh, that means that they are able to charge whatever they want they get huge profits of it, and with those profits, they can uh, acquire weapons and they can challenge the authority of the state, which is based in theory on the monopoly of violence. Now, in uh, the United States and Canada and the United Kingdom and other parts of Europe, what we have is uh, a problem of victims who, who take drugs. They are still regarded as criminals and not as people in need of uh, health assistance. So we have a bad social situation in the West. And now, of course, with the uh, fentanyl crisis in the United States, we have a very, very serious uh, drugs problem indeed. But this is nothing compared to the violence that the cocaine industry wreaks upon the ordinary people of South America. Since the 1980s, we have had millions, but millions of people slaughtered as a consequence of um, as a consequence of the war on drugs. And we have large parts of Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, which are outside the control of government and controlled by drug gangs. Now, what's been happening over the past 10 years is you have seen some of the uh, areas of production move from places like Colombia or Afghanistan, in the case of uh, opium and heroin, and it's moved up into the areas of consumption like the United States, Canada, or or Europe. And this is partly because of a shift in drug culture and habits amongst young people. They now take, tend to take more ecstasy, more ketamine, uh, and other types of um, uh, synthetic drugs, which are manufactured in Japan, in Canada, in Holland, uh, in Serbia, and in Bulgaria. And so you have got the areas of production much closer to the uh, areas of consumption. And this is a huge strain on law enforcement. So uh, when they're having to deal with the labs and with new distribution networks uh, uh, as uh, facilitated by the internet, they basically don't have the resources to do that. So one of the re reasons we're seeing the steady legalization of marijuana in the United States is because law enforcement cannot cope with all the drugs they're having to deal with. Um, and uh, if you look at the US, and of course Canada is preparing uh, under the Trudeau administration to uh, legalize recreational use of marijuana. If you look at the United States, take Colorado last year, absolutely extraordinary situation where the tax revenues from recreational marijuana 
were $76 million last year, which was more than twice of the tax revenues accrued from alcohol in the same period in Colorado. So very quickly, what you're seeing in those states where they have legalized marijuana is a a reduction in violence, this is very important, and B, an increase to state revenues, which in cases like uh, uh, Colorado are hypothecated for health and education. So it is a, a virtuous a virtuous circle. Now, that is to do with marijuana. There are more problematic issues to do with cocaine and heroin due to the, uh, due to the powerful addictive nature of those drugs. But we have to shift our uh, drug law strategy away from the punitive war on drugs, which does nothing to stop people taking drugs. Uh, on the contrary, it encourages them to take bad drugs. And uh, it leads to the death, quite literally, of millions over uh, over a number of years uh, around the world. And that is why I think the slow but steady move we're seeing to a more rational drugs policy and drug law reform, where harm reduction and the health of users is paramount, um, is a very, very positive move. And it will ultimately undermine the power of criminal gangs around the world. I mean, I'm aligned with, with all that and, and definitely legalizing drugs because, you know, you even hear that. I even hear that a lot from police officers that work the streets and detectives. Yeah. They're really tired of fighting against something that can't be won. But let's turn to um, the growing industry of human trafficking. How can yeah. we combat that? It seems like it's getting almost out of control, an epidemic right now. Yes. Well, this, of course, one of the reasons I think that this is, is happening is for specific political and, and economic reasons. If you look around the world and you look at, you look at cities, cities are improving and becoming better places to live and becoming more popular places to live, particularly in the North and the West. If you look at the expansion of cities in the global South, it is quite extraordinary to see how fast they're growing and how difficult it is for local authorities to maintain the services required for uh, peace. And that every so often, these cities sort of explode in outbreaks of, of violence. And quite often, in certain situations, this leads to the creation of uh, new refugee population. So you have you have that issue. You have the issue of labor market controls and people wanting to go to where the work is, but there is also a lot of resistance amongst local populations, and we've seen that in the growth of uh, anti-immigrant uh, parties and so on. And so the way in Europe in particular, so the way for people to get in there is to be smuggled in there. So sometimes you, we have to differentiate between people trafficking that are people being trafficked against their will, which is usually people being trafficked for sexual purposes, and sometimes being trafficked as slave labor as well. And then a much bigger trade is those people who are trafficked knowingly, that essentially what they're, uh, what the traffickers are, what the snakeheads are, as they're called, 
are glorified travel agencies with an additional service offered of getting you across a border uh, illegally. So this is partly labor migration and to do with the sort of confused management of labor markets around the world. And it is partly a criminal operation. But as soon as you have people being banned from moving from one part to another, you will see criminal organizations emerging to get them across the borders illegally. You're right. There's slave labor and then there's people traded for sex. So we have a lot of people right now that are being traded for sexual favors. Who's doing that? Like, who's at the top of the chain? Uh, Well, you get people being moved around the world for sexual purposes absolutely everywhere and sometimes not moved around the world. Sometimes you get, you know, a large indigenous trade, as in countries like Thailand. You get women from Eastern Europe in particular trafficked into the Middle East, both into Israel and into the Gulf states and elsewhere. You get uh, women from Nigeria trafficked uh, to Europe and to South America. You get women being trafficked all over the place. And then there are also, in many states, there are internal trafficking. So, for example, in Brazil, they still have a problem with the trafficking of underage girls for sexual purposes. You have people trafficked across states in the United States to go and work in brothels. So, this is a universal problem. In most cases, of course, I'd like to see it not just as where are they coming from, but where are they being trafficked to. So, you continue to have a huge underground prostitution culture in many countries around the world, particularly in Europe and the United States, apart from its anomalies like uh, Nevada or, in Europe's case, Germany, where prostitution is is legalized and brothels brothels are are legal and, and registered. So, in the past few years, there has been a ferocious debate that has sprung up amongst feminists, particularly in the West, about whether you should entirely criminalize prostitution or whether you should legalize it. And uh, um, so uh, this is a debate which I, I think in some respects should be left to women, although not entirely. I would make the observation that just as with drugs, If you make an industry illegal, uh, then you are placing the market into the hands of criminals. Well, I think with the legalization of prostitution, I mean, from my experience, a lot of people that are in the trade would prefer to be legalized. But the big issue with human trafficking for sexual purposes is underage girls and boys. I mean, that can never be legalized. So I don't know how we talk about that. No. I mean, you know, but that's where the resources should be going. The resources should be going to uh, st- stopping stopping trafficking in children for sexual purposes. Absolutely no question about it. A lot of that uh, is uh, domestic um, in Central South America, in East Asia as, as well. But also with, with this issue... Uh, the internet has created a lot of problems. So I have um, spent a bit of time with child protection units in Europe and in 
Brazil who are trying to track down people who are producing child pornography for the web. And it is very difficult because quite often this trade, unlike other criminal trades on the net, like the selling of drugs, for example, is not monetized, or at least not monetized very much. So that basically these are this, uh, this is a community of interest, and people will abuse children and photograph and video children being abused in exchange for other material of a similar nature with no money changing hands. And once you take once you take the money out of the equation, as any law enforcement officer will tell you, it becomes much more difficult to track an industry. Well, and I think also, you know, you talk a lot about the dark web and about cybercrime. I mean, currently, when you go on the dark web, there are humans for sale. I mean, it's crazy yeah. to think that people are selling humans, but they're selling kids, they're selling humans. And can somehow the dark web be curated or managed or like how do how do we deal with something that's well this is uh, very very difficult and it's something which law enforcement is struggling to manage at the moment I, I mean the internet has is changing the economics of the drug business and the sort of social culture of the drug business enormously because the key thing about the internet and crime on the internet and its fundamental difference from traditional organized crime is that if you want to be involved in traditional organized crime, the one sine qua known, the one thing you have to have and you have to be able to use is violence. You have to be able to deploy violence or to threaten violence. And on the internet, you don't. And so the people engaged in crime on the internet are of, often of a very different sociological profile than those involved in traditional organized crime. Quite frequently, they're extremely smart as well. So you can have someone selling a huge amount of drugs over the internet without actually having a very big, uh, very big costs in terms of labor or indeed in terms of avoiding law enforcement. Now, occasionally, law enforcement is able to take down big sites on the dark net, but this takes quite literally years to do. They have to infiltrate themselves into the administration of the dark net, and that takes uh, years of undercover, of patient undercover work. And every time a major site like Silk Road 2, for example, goes down, it's only a matter of hours or days before new ones are up to replace them. And then it takes, you know, another period of months, if not years, to bring down those new ones, which are popping up all, all, all the time. So what we have for about, I would say about four or five years, what law enforcement around the world has been worrying about is what we're seeing now, which is the sort of the sort of fusion of traditional organized crime operations and cyber criminal operations in what Europol dubbed this year the digitalization of, of crime. Coming up next, Misha talks about the dark web, how government should handle hackers involved with criminal activity, what it's like working as a journalist interviewing criminals, and if women are involved as leaders in organized crime. 
when we return on Stand Up Speak Up. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace. With each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. We're back on Stand Up Speak Up. Host Carla Stevens Tolstoy is talking with writer and journalist Misha Glennie, known for his book McMafia, which is set to become a TV show next year. We continue with their conversation. You say in your book that you think that the government should focus on taking these cyber hackers and then, you know, forcing them to work for the government so that they can learn as much as possible from them. I would never say that anyone has should be forced to work okay, for a well, government. Okay, well, I said, okay, so maybe not forced, but, but perhaps... No, so what I, what, I, uh, what I argue is this, is, is that uh, our dependence on network computer systems is growing exponentially every day and we're we're about to have a huge expansion of that because of the internet of things the internet of things is fantastically vulnerable security is not nearly as deeply embedded in the internet of things as it ought to be so this is a big problem because we have a dearth of computer engineers who are able to manage security systems for networked uh, for network computers, uh, and so we desperately need people who understand cybersecurity. We also have uh, often very ill-judged cybersecurity regimes where we spend huge amounts of money on digital solutions to the problem, trying to defend ourselves from outside attackers, but we don't educate our children and we don't educate employees in companies or people who work for charities or government institutions into how they should behave with computers in order to avoid being the subject of a breach. So this means that it's all hands to the deck 
when it comes to cybersecurity at the moment. As we've seen over the past two years, the number of breaches is proliferating. The power of uh, DDoS distributed denial of service attacks uh, on uh, computers um, is uh, is growing at a phenomenal rate because of the Internet of uh, of Things. And uh, we have to be very concerned about the security of our critical national infrastructures, utilities, communications, financial infrastructure, health, and so on and so forth. So for that, we're going to need people. And what we often do is, is we lock away some of the best hackers that we have for inordinate amount of times for crimes they committed when they were still very young and still didn't really know the moral context within the, within the, which they were operating. And I think this is a big mistake. Okay, so right now, do you think that governments are not using these these hackers to their benefit and just putting them in jail? I mean, that just seems ridiculous to me. Wouldn't you take advantage of that talent? Well, there has been a change in the past five years or so where what we have seen is that companies are ever more willing to employ people, hackers, who have criminal records. And that's because they are often just very, very good at what they do. And a lot of the criminal hackers who I have encountered and um, uh, and interviewed um, have expressed a real desire to want to work on behalf of people uh, and not against people. It's just that they become hackers and they start exploring this world and they explore the world of criminality um, when they're still very young. When you know, Hackers develop their skills between about the ages of 11 and 15, and that's before they've developed a proper moral compass. And the whole thing is very exciting because it coincides with their adolescence and they need to assert themselves against uh, their parents and the broader adult world. And the internet, if they're, if they're skilled at, at understanding how network and computer systems work, is this marvelous environment for them to experiment and do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And there are people on the internet who are scanning for those young, talented hackers. They monitor chat rooms and uh, other social media, and they entice them into a world of criminality. And what we need to do is to create alternative opportunities for these people, um, both before and after they have become involved in criminal work, in know, my opinion. But I think what happens, I mean, just from my experience, whenever I have to work with something that's a, a bigger a company, a government, I mean, they do not promote innovative thinking or being like a maverick. And so you'd think a lot of these people that do this don't want to be bogged down in a bureaucratic environment and would get really disheartened after just like one month of working. Whereas a criminal entity, they basically get to do whatever they want and innovation is applauded. Mm, yes, except if you pay them enough, you may find that they're prepared to work for the, the other side. There are companies, uh, particularly in... Uh, on the west coast of the United States, but also um, SAP, the big um, software giant in, in Germany, who consciously seek out 
young people with uh, Asperger's syndrome and autism because these people often have advanced computer skills. So you see companies on the, uh, on the West Coast who are getting some of the most advanced hackers to work with them, even though they're not sort of conventionally well-adjusted in sort of social situations and things like that. And these companies are fantastically, fantastically successful. So you're right about the innovation problem, but that's more a question of the culture of business in general. Or the culture of government. Like if the government really wants them in to help them, I mean, I mean it must be a mess, a bureaucratic disaster to work in government. Uh, well, no one wants to work for the government because they don't pay enough when it comes to cybersecurity. So one of the problems that everyone has, uh, uh, governments in particular, less so the United States, well, to an extent, the United States. If you go and ask the, um, if you go and meet all the security people in the, the giants from Yahoo to Google to um, McAfee and all, all those companies down the down the west coast in the United States, go and see their security people. They all used to be working cyber for the FBI or the CIA or the secret secret service. So you have a hemorrhaging of talent from government into the private sector, which means that, um, for example, we have a problem here with GCHQ, which is our digital spy agency, because as soon as people reach a certain level of competence, then in come the big private companies and scoop them up. And that's where you have a problem also with the dearth of cybersecurity engineers at the moment. Okay, so you've, you've put yourself in a lot of extreme situations. You've met with cartel leaders. You've met with cyber hackers. How do you take care of your own safety? Are you not sometimes scared or thinking like, oh God, I don't want that person as an enemy? Well, the BBC, I was the chief radio correspondent during the wars in Yugoslavia. And uh, in Yugoslavia, when you were near the front line, and that was in uh, often in urban situations with uh, heavy artillery bombardment and things like that, I was in much greater danger. This was before I was doing intense work on, on organized crime. However, the difference uh, between that and the sort of work that I've done subsequently is, is that when you're covering a war in somewhere like Yugoslavia, you have all your colleagues around with you. There's a great sense of camaraderie amongst journalists. So when I go out and, and meet gangsters, meet drug dealers, um, you know, meet hackers and so on, I'm on my own. So although I, I, I mean, it takes me months and months to arrange meetings with people. It is absolutely critical to have the right interlocutor. So you need to know, and that's just part of your skill set as a journalist, particularly if you've worked as a foreign correspondent, you can very quickly, through contacts, identify who the key person is in you know, the key local fixer or something like that, who may have contacts to the underworld, and you go through them. And then you put in basic security measures. You try not to do things on your own. You tell various people where you're going to be and when you're coming back. Um, but they can't always look after you. So my most recent book, Nemesis, which is the biography of the guy who for five years ran the largest uh, favela in, in Rio, Hosinia, which has the largest turnover of cocaine in, in Rio in terms of retail cocaine sales. I lived in Hosinia for, for three months 
and uh, living in the favela. And uh, I mean, people knew I was there, but I wasn't going to keep them in touch every hour about what I was, what I was doing. And after a while, you know, you take security measures instinctively to ensure that you that uh, that if you get yourself into a situation, it's not a potentially fatal situation, and you can find a way out. So, I, I mean, I would say it involves experience over. Uh, over decades that, you know, I, I've built up. I've been working as a journalist since the uh, early 1980s. So when you meet these these leaders, these gangsters, these cartel leaders, I mean, there must be something, I don't know if it's charming or appealing about them that you want to continue to get inside their brain. I mean, do you ever feel like they become friends? Uh, so it depends who they are and it depends what they do. Um, what I did with McMaffey and what I like to see is, is, uh, you know, organized crime and criminality is a complex world internally, but it also interacts with the licit world. And often people become involved in organized crime because of specific ec- economic circumstances of, of where they live. and. I tend to see the business of organized crime as being pretty much, in this respect, like licit businesses. You have good managers, you have bad managers, you have managers who want to uh, exploit people in order to maximize their profit, and you have managers who understand that unless their foot soldiers and the community often that they come from uh, are happy and have a degree of security, then they are not going to survive very long, and they may find it uh, morally morally difficult as uh, as well. So when I see, so what what interests me about gangsters is not how many people they've killed and how ruthless they are. That's something that you can identify quite quickly. When I interview people, whether it's you know the head of a, a, a yakuza. Uh, Yakuza family, um, whether it's uh, a member of the FARC, who I've interviewed, the uh, armed forces, revolutionary armed forces of Colombia, the sort of coke dealers in fatigues, or whether it's a mobster in Odessa in Ukraine. I don't go in there and say, how do you feel being a mass murderer? I don't poke them in the eye. The first thing I always ask them is where they were born, what their parents did for a living, and what sort of childhood they had. And apart from this often being very, very revealing and then getting a sense of their life and how it developed and how they got into the business of crime in the first place, it starts to make them feel relaxed because most people are like normal human beings that once they get going, there's nothing they like better than talking about themselves. And I'm interested in the way that criminal psychology interacts with the objective economic and social circumstances uh, in which people uh, grow up and, uh, and operate. And then when you see it within that context, what are the decisions they make? Are they ones that are psychopathic or are they ones which are rational? What percentage would you say are rational? I mean, I would think a lot of them would have to have some, if not sociopath, psychopathic characteristics to do what they do, you know, to be able to compartmentalize. I mean, or they would have like nightmares all the time and 
Yeah, I would say that most of them are rational economic actors. Uh, and that within that, bearing in mind what I said earlier about the essential aspect of the business of traditional organized crime is violence and the use of violence, it's an absolute rule that they have to control those areas which are under their jurisdiction. And if that means shooting somebody dead as a warning, then they will do it. Because if you don't do it, then your jurisdiction over that market, over that control is, is threatened. And so it's almost axiomatic if you're in the leadership of a traditional organized crime syndicate, if you're not prepared to murder somebody who's not necessarily guilty of anything, uh, then you're probably in the wrong business. What about females? What is the percentage of female organized crime leaders? And are they similar to their male counterparts? Very, very, very few is the answer to that. And uh, this is, I would say, the overwhelming primary reason, the active reason why there are so few, is, is that most organized crime groups around the world are highly patriarchal and macho. And women are specifically excluded from membership. And, and that is not quite, but almost, almost universal. So when women become involved in organized crime, it is usually through serendipity. So for example, if they're a powerful personality and they are married or partnered to the boss, who then for some reason is taken out, either being killed or, or more likely put into jail, and he invests his authority in her, then you will see them in a position to wield some authority. But this is a very, very rare exception. Women on the whole, there, is, there are some very good books written in particular about women in mafia structures in Italy. That's where uh, some of the best work's been done, but also in, in South America. When it is combined with an extreme culture of machismo, uh, as it is in Central and South America, then this is utterly deadly for, for, for women. So they are seen as very much as sort of chattels and projections of uh, gang members, and that if it is suspected that they are having illicit relations with another man, not only will the other man be killed, but they will be killed as well. We are seeing in Mexico at the moment, over the past 10 years or so, the most extreme forms of violence perpetrated almost on a collective scale against women by some of the cartels and some of the military and federal police uh, and local police operatives as well. Uh, so women in organized crime have a very bad time of it. About 80% of most crimes, 80 to 85% across the board, whether it's murder, whether it's theft, whether it's child abuse or so on, 80, 85% are perpetrated by men 
in society in general, and it's about 10-15% uh, women. The one crime where we see an even more abnormal bias, an even higher bias in favor of men is hacking and cybercrime, where about 95 to 96% of hackers are male and only about 3 or 4% are female. Why do you think that is? Because you would think that male and female are equally talented at hacking, especially as the new generation comes. Do you think that's just a timing issue, like that more female hackers are going to be, you know, in no, this I think generation? It's, I think it's that there's an element of a higher percentage of young men who are uh, on the spectrum, as it were. But there is also a very different process of socialization that goes on between uh, young boys and young girls, and in particular with the use of uh, with the use of computers, there are groups of uh, women involved in cybersecurity, involved in tech startups, who are trying to encourage and wherever I can, I support this, the expansion of women working in tech industries. And if you get the expansion of women working in tech industries in a variety of capacities, I think you will see an expansion of uh, of women engaged in hacking as uh, as well. But I have to say the hacking community and the criminal hacking community is a very, very macho community as well. And we see this expressed when it comes to uh, things like the gaming community and the uh, uh, ex- extraordinary levels, inexplicable levels of abuse aimed against women in that uh, amongst some members of that community these are these are sort of huge sociological issues which i haven't entirely got my head around i have to say i mean for me i was uh, probably one of the only ever female ceos in the czech republic and of a big telecom company so it was interesting because people always assumed that when I came to a meeting, I was the secretary or the assistant. And sometimes I would indulge that and I would bring them coffee. But then when, <laughs> then when somebody would come in the mail and they would assume that they're the head of the company, they would say, oh, no, no, Carla is. And so being a foreigner allowed me to be accepted a little bit at least. But I didn't yeah. realize how unique it was because here we are, a billion-dollar business in a male-dominated country. Yeah. Well, I mean, we still have that uh, across the board here in the United Kingdom. We have a big struggle trying to increase the number of female board members and non-executive directors. I mean, the pattern is the same more or less everywhere around the world, with the Scandinavians usually coming out slightly better than the rest of us. Uh, But uh, the further up the pyramid you go, whether it's criminal, whether it's business, whether it's politics, the fewer women you encounter. And, you know, this can only speak to some form of institutional discrimination. This has been Stand Up, Speak Up with your host, Carla Stevens-Tolstoy and guest, Misha Glenny. You can find a link for his book, McMafia, in the show notes for this episode at standupspeakupblog.com. There's no exact date just yet for the TV adaptation of the book, but it is expected in 2018. We hope that you're keeping calm through the holiday season and appreciate you listening during this busy time of year. Look for our special edition podcast over Christmas where Carla shares the fascinating story of how she became CEO at a young age in the male-dominated industry. And her son Zach joins to talk about the mother-son team behind Stand Up Speak Up Fashion. Pain. So much stronger than before
play outside. We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.